starting in verse 30, working our way down to verse 47. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear these words of you rebuking and teaching the scribes and Pharisees, and yet uh, we want to believe your words and find ourselves often struggling struggling to receive and accept what you say. And so we pray that you'd be at work in this hour, stripping down our barriers, helping us to hear and to see and to understand and repent and find the life in you. Lord, we pray that you would do this by your kind spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, uh, my wife assigned a verse to my son for his schooling curriculum. It's this. A wise son listens to his father's instruction. Good verse. I like that. Proverbs 13.1. So it's a fun little proverb, and at first glance, it seems like uh, it's talking about how you become wise, right? Uh, you listen to a lot of instruction for a long time, and then you finally graduate from being taught to being one who possesses the status of wise. But that's actually not what it says. It says, a son who can currently be called wise currently listens to his father's instruction. We have to ask, if the son was so wise, why would he need to listen to instruction? What it means is that to be wise is to be one who listens. Shortly after I learned how to drive uh, on automatics, my parents taught me how to drive manual cars, stick. And I grew up in Seattle, which uh, is mostly hills like this, you know, 20% grade. And uh, to drive from church, in, or from our house in Ballard to our church in Green Lake, we would go up over Finney Ridge, which is basically, it's just a big, tall hill. And of course, you put stoplights at the top, right? Um, so if you don't know about uh, manual cars, the trick of it is you're on the hill and you have your foot on the brake, 
right? And then you have to let out, you have to take your foot off the brake, and so your car starts rolling backwards. And as it's rolling backwards, you have to keep your cool and let out the clutch and start gingerly giving a little bit of gas just until the traction starts picking up and you can get going. Well, the problem is, first, that's terrifying. Second, automatic drivers don't know what they're doing, and they back right up behind you, expecting you're just going to take off. So I had like 50% success rate at best on flat ground, okay, for months. <laughs> it's hard to figure out. Uh, but I wanted practice one Sunday on the way home, and uh, I told my dad, you know, I'm practice driving up. So we come up this hill, and we get stopped on one of these red lights. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, he says to me, very kindly, this is my father, um, I, these hills are hard. You know, uh, I find it helpful to, and I cut him off. I can do it, Dad. You know, I got this, okay? Uh, I had done months of hard work of the starting and stopping, practicing the clutch, let it go, so on and so forth. I am not taking some old man shortcut, okay? So, showtime comes. Traffic starts to move. I let go of the brake, start letting out the clutch, give a little too, too little gas, then too much. The car jolts, jerks, sputters, stops, dies. Inches before I hit someone behind me, slam on the brakes. Okay. I blew it. Missed the light. I missed the light, but then so also did all the other cars behind me, right? <laughs> and they happily let me know that they didn't like that. <laughs> Missing lights in Seattle. Not, not good. I wanted to be wise but it turned out that I was a fool. A wise son listens to father's instruction. So instruction was offered, instruction that would have got me through the light, that would have saved me the embarrassment, and blew it off. There's another proverb, too. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 26. Jesus, in this passage is responding to the accusation of the Pharisees who say, how dare you make yourself equal with God? What he says to them is that they will never understand who he is so long as they are unwilling to be humbled, so long as they will not listen to the instruction, the true testimony offered to them. But Jesus gives uh, reason for their not listening. He doesn't simply say they won't hear. He says, why? And these are our three points this morning. He says they won't listen, or they can't believe because... They are too busy judging others. Secondly, because they love glory from others. And thirdly, because they don't know or trust the love of God. So too busy judging, they love glory from other people, and they don't know or trust God's love. So these are our three points. I think we have quite a bit to learn from this passage, uh, both in terms of how we resist God's word, what, what, what's at play in our hearts and our minds when that's happening. But also, I think we need to be reshaped in how we think about talking to people who don't know the Lord. Right? How, how it is we go about presenting the gospel. So, first, they won't believe or listen because they are too busy judging. Or another way to say that is they are unwilling to be judged. This is seen, first of all, when they're accusing Jesus. Right? Uh, the beginning of this chapter, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, he sees this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, has compassion on him, tells him to stand up, and the man stands up. And they come to him, Jesus, the, the leaders do, and they, they're angry because he broke the Sabbath. And his response is, I'm not breaking the Sabbath. I'm God, and I'm just doing what my father does. 
kind of classic Jesus in some ways. It doesn't really help them. He kind of provokes them, right? Uh, but these scribes and Pharisees are very good monotheists. They believe there's only one God. And in fact, they're so good that they want to kill him for claiming to be God. Of course, believing that there is one God and knowing, listening, and trusting to that one God are very different things. They're very different. Jesus' claim to be equal with God strikes this nerve for them. Now, Jesus is a monotheist as well. Right? He says in verse 44, he talks of the only God. That is to say, there's no other. And he never shames anyone for not understanding the Trinity. Right? One God, three persons. He never shames anyone for being confused about that. In fact, he's very slow and kind and tender in bringing people in. The issue is not that they were confused, but that they were unwilling to learn. Later on, the Pharisees are disputing about Jesus. And uh, in, verse, in chapter 7, Nicodemus, who we met in chapter 3, Nicodemus in chapter 7 says, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In response to this, they say, oh, Are you a Galilean too? Are you just going to go follow him? turns out that giving someone a hearing is exactly what they don't want to do. They are the judges of Israel. So they should never be questioned. Now that's true. They worked on the Sanhedrin. They were in the place of judging. But that also means that they've put themselves there. But Jesus doesn't actually reject them for this. Instead, he takes their accusations very seriously. Their reasoning is honored. Their reasoning is honored. Because some of the criticizing and evaluating they're doing is right and good. God has made us to sift and judge people's claims. That's why you have a brain. Okay? God has given you these things. But Jesus, the supreme judge, who has all right in the world to say, listen, I don't have to prove myself to you, he doesn't resist the rational process. In fact, he submits himself to it, even to the legal requirements of their Jewish tradition. He says he does this in verse 34, so that you may be saved. Jesus goes through this process not because he needs to, but for them. He wants them to hear. So what does he want them to hear? He gives three witnesses to defend his case. If you know your Old Testament, there's a requirement for it, that for any claim, you have two or three witnesses to back it up. So, who are his three witnesses? Well, first, John the Baptist, right, a prophet. This is verses 33 through 35. Second, the works and words of Jesus, verses 36 and 37. And third, the scriptures, and incidentally, Moses, right? The problem is, they can't hear these witnesses. In fact, the whole ground of their accusation about Jesus, right, healing someone on the Sabbath, Jesus says, was actually one of God's witnesses to them that they should have heard. Someone is healed. Pay attention. The same thing with the scriptures. What should have caught their ear and made them question themselves, sitting as judges of Jesus, instead became a tool to prove their correctness. I mean, listen to verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me. But you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now this is a posture of pride. No doubt about that. We can name it from a thousand miles away. But this posture of pride doesn't happen uh, by deciding to be proud. None of us wake up in the morning and think, today I'm going to be arrogant. 
Right? That's not what happens. It's not what we do. No, pride happens as we decide to resist being exposed and being judged. Pride happens when we insist on defending ourselves by being the judge and exposing others. That is to say, they don't resist Jesus' witnesses because they're bad witnesses, but because they threaten their status and position as judge. Now, this is how it is with us as well. This is always how it is. Uh, I spent years in my marriage uh, trying to convince my wife that we were fine. Fine. My wife would say, uh, she'd asked to see a counselor. She asked for years. She's telling me that things are bad. She's depressed. My response, be hopeful, honey. <laughs> you know, we don't need to see a counselor. Our out-of-control fights, they'll fix themselves. Our intimacy, you know, it'll, it's gonna ha- it'll be all right someday. You know, actually, if you had a better attitude about it, right, we, it'd be fine. We wouldn't be fighting about it, and everything would be better. God's good. Just believe in him more. Of course, here's the thing. I had to say that. I had to say that. Because if I admitted that we were a wreck, I was afraid of what she might do. I felt I had to prove to her, but also to myself and to anyone else, that we were going to be fine. Because if I didn't, I thought she was going to give up on her marriage. That says actually very little about who my wife is and everything about me. Everything about my fears, my shame. My hunger to keep things together, to make everything feel right, blinded me to the real state of our marriage. So, I could only hear complaints as threats and reasons why I had failed as condemnation. I couldn't hear the invitation to real hope held out to me in the form of confession and reconciliation. And we finally saw a pastor, a counselor, and finally worked through this stuff. But in attempting to prove myself... I was blinded to the truth, to the person standing right in front of me. It will always be impossible to hear and understand when you are first seeking to defend yourself and maintain your place as judge. It will always be impossible to understand anyone else if you are dead set on proving that you're right or exposing why other people are wrong. It's true of understanding others as much as it is of understanding God. And so also we need to recognize that when we speak to unbelievers, no matter how well-constructed our arguments are or how much evidence we amass, at the end of the day, so long as the person we are talking to is committed to being the judge and never being judged, never being exposed, they will never accept the kind of evidence we want to bring. So long as they are the judge, they're running the court, and so they will not let your evidence in. And in fact, this is part of a big project that's been happening in uh, Western thinking for the last 400 years. Started with a guy named Rene Descartes. Let me read you a short quote from him. In 1641, he begins this project of trying to find a sure footing for all knowledge, right? He's going to ground all knowledge and make it all reasonable. He says in his book, Meditations, I will proceed by setting aside all that in which the least doubt could be supposed to exist, just as if I had discovered that it was absolutely false, and I shall shall ever follow in this road until I have met with something which is certain, 
Or at least, if I can do nothing else until I have learned for certain that there is nothing in the world that is certain. So, I'm going to throw out everything that I can have a doubt about. If I can doubt it, it can't work. It sounds very admirable, very objective, doesn't it? Right? I won't trust anything if I can doubt it at all. But what does he do? He sets himself as the examiner of all ideas. And after throwing out everything, he decides that this is the bedrock of all knowledge. His own existence. Right? He says, I am. I exist. It's true every time I say it. This is the famous, I think, therefore I am. The only problem, of course, is that he didn't tell us what makes him so sure of his own project. What makes this project a good idea, Renee? He is now the judge of all reality, and as judge, he gets to decide what counts as evidence of truth and what doesn't. Somehow, his existence has become the test for all truth. Surprisingly, he doesn't seem to have any doubts about whether he ought to be the one who gets to decide what counts as evidence, right? Who justified that? So we see it, but uh, the conversation has continued, and 300 years later, a guy named uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, great Austrian name, exposes Descartes' mistake. He says this, If you are not certain of any fact, you cannot be certain of your words either. If you tried to doubt everything, you would, get, you would not get as far as doubting anything. The game of doubting presupposes certainty. That is to say, all the work you have to do to place yourself, yourself as judge, to place yourself as the one who gets to decide what counts and what doesn't, involves a whole host of core assumptions a whole host of things you've never proved, and in fact, you aren't in a place to prove. And so what I want you to see is that even in these philosophical conversations, okay, which actually color much of what's happening in our culture and much of how we think, even in these, what pretends to be very objective, very methodical reasoning, is often blindness to a core assumption. We are the judge, and no one, not even God, has a right to judge me. So the question we have in turn is why? Why are we drawn to that assumption? What leads us to set ourselves up as judge? What draws us and Jesus' accusers in this passage into defending ourselves? And this is our second point. We, just like they, love glory from other people because it covers our shame. We love glory from others because it covers our shame. It's a form of self-justification. So what is the shame that the Pharisees and scribes feel in this passage? Well, if you know your Old Testament, this is the basic story. The Jewish nation had historically gotten themselves into trouble uh, by wandering away from God and worshiping the gods of the nations around them, like the idols. They seem so powerful. We're going to give ourselves to them. So God sends other nations to come to Israel and conquer them and then export them back to their homeland. So now Israel's exiled. Well, God finally returns Israel back to their own land. They're finally back home, and yet they're back home living under the thumb of these foreign kingdoms who don't know the Lord at all. So, the nation became very afraid of drifting from monotheism. Uh, In fact, in the 400 years before Jesus' birth, this is the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, they go on high alert, right? They don't want to veer away from the Lord, and they're right to do so, right? It's a good concern. 
But what I want you to see in terms of why that would make them desperate to be right about Jesus, to accuse them, is that they had begun to make themselves into piety and doctrine police, trying to make sure their fellow Jews were pleasing to God. Some of this is fear. Right? This comes out in a conversation later on in John's Gospel where they're disputing among themselves after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. They say, what are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's a tremendous amount of fear, but they also probably did this in hopes that if they were faithful enough, if they're faithful enough, God would finally give them back their nation and their freedom. Until then, they would live under constant reminder of their faithlessness, the adultery with other gods that landed them in exile. Right? They're now in servitude in their own land. That's a powerful social shame. They are the people whom God miraculously freed, who now live under the thumb of oppressors as slaves again because of their own unfaithfulness. So what do they do? They try to hide their shame and look for others to ease the pain. If you want to know what it's like to live with a constant reminder of shame, I will tell you. Okay. On our minivan, we have two power sliding doors. And uh, one night, I was putting my daughter Ruthie into one of the seats, and the, we were on a steep incline, and so the door started closing on me, which made me very angry. <laughs> so I put her in her seat and then slammed the door back in the van. Get off me. Ah. Okay, got it. Now the door's broken, right? <laughs> you, it won't close with the button. It won't close with anything. It won't close by you pulling it. You have to push the button and do this. And so when someone else comes and tries to do it with me, what I have to explain every time, oh, yeah, the door's broken. Uh, I won't tell you the story, right? Uh, it's embarrassing. It's this constant reminder. So I want to sell the car if you want to buy it from us. <laughs> <laughs> But the point is that Jesus exposes this in them. Right? He says this in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What do you do when you're afraid of being exposed? You look for others to give you glory. You look for others to sing your praises. You look for others to boost you up. How do they do this? Well, two ways, and we do the same. You can look for glory from other people to cover your shame by being the best or by being friends with the best. Right? So being the best. We see this in uh, verse 39. Jesus says they diligently search the scriptures. That's a, uh, a word that's referring to a Hebrew word which is very uh, like assiduously studying, right? giving yourself to the text, pouring over a text. Turns out that actually, if you read uh, some of the Jewish writings from the day, uh, they not only believed that the scriptures spoke about eternal life, right, in Jesus and in God, but actually that in studying them, they earned eternal life for themselves. So Jesus is saying, listen, you're very good studiers of the law. You're very diligent. But the error is that you think in doing so, you've covered your shame. You think in doing so, you've earned yourself life. So you're the smartest, the most studied person in the Bible, the best arguer, the best religious vocab talker. 
right? If you do that, that's actually pretty easy to impress people, right? You can talk circles around people and say things like ontological, eschatological, epistemological, perichoresis, this and that, and they think, whoa, this guy has got it together. And you actually, the thing is, it actually works for a while, and you feel good about yourself, even to the point that you begin to believe your own show. That's when you know you're in trouble. The other option is being friends with the best. Jesus says in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So just like in our day, they had their own celebrated teachers who would show up and say, well, you know, I'm the student of so-and-so. Who's the student of so-and-so? If you read the Mishnah, which is kind of a law uh, text from that time, you very quickly figure out who the major celebrated teachers of the day are because they're quoted all the time. So we all know how this works, right? Oh, that guy? Yeah, that guy. That guy learned how to preach from John Piper. Yeah, yeah, with John Piper. Right? That guy was mentored by Tim Keller. Right? He's kind of our uh, golden calf in PCA. Uh, nothing is wrong with either one of those names. Great. Jo- I love those guys. The problem is what we're trying to do with them. We want to convince everyone else that what we have to say, our ideas, our work, our character, our lifestyle, is more important and praiseworthy. Or that important and praiseworthy people like us. So don't look behind the curtain. And we do this by defending and arguing for the competency of our own or of the people we follow. Our competency becomes the tool we use to get glory from other people, to demand it from other people. The point, however, is that when we do this, it keeps us from hearing what the witnesses are saying. Our competency keeps us from hearing what the witnesses are saying. And in fact, witnesses are problematic for this reason. Because uh, listening to someone doesn't make you look any smarter or any more put together. Instead, it makes them look important. And it makes you look dumb because you have to learn from them. Right? In fact, to learn from a witness doesn't take any special skill at all. You just sit back and hear. Why would I ever listen to someone when I can show off my own competence instead? Right? In fact, to listen to a witness is an act of trust. In fact, more than that, it's an act of powerlessness. Because they know things. They're speaking about things that you can't prove on your own. You can't figure out on your own. So to receive their word, their testimony, is to trust. They are telling you the truth. And if they're wrong, it's quite embarrassing. We would be ashamed if we believed someone turned out they were wrong. So, we will never run the risk of being embarrassed if we are trying to cover up our shame. And so, we will never run the risk of knowing God. It takes a tremendous amount of risk and trust to simply know God. To be someone who trusts, who out of their own powerlessness simply receives what he has to say. One author says this, knowledge of God is not, first of all, the fruit of human industry or the the product of what we can bring to the table, but rather attentiveness, paying attention. This biblical conception of how we may attain knowledge of God contrasts uh, 
with the prevailing view of modernity, that knowledge is mastery. Mastery. There's a word I want to think about for a minute. Mastery is being beyond instruction, being beyond making mistakes, beyond embarrassment, and therefore beyond shame. But if we are to know God and therefore know the world and ourselves, we are called to listen, to hear what the witnesses have to say, and to have the light shine on us. A wise son listens to his father's instruction. So let me just simply say that if we wonder why we do not progress more in our walk with Christ, it's often because we don't want to enter into the shame the Lord would expose and would go with us into. We think if other people knew how dark our thoughts were, how deep our struggle runs, they'd never talk to us again. And so how much more the Lord? He doesn't just see the things I do. He knows my heart. He sees me. So we work so hard to please him, so hard to follow him that every word from him just feels like another thing to be done. But that's just the problem. When we can only hear God's words and the witness of Scripture as condemnation instead of invitation, we are running from our shame thinking that our competence and our achievement will cover it up. Let me just say it like this. If you find it very difficult to hear correction, if you find it very difficult to hear someone teach you from the Scriptures, if you find it difficult to accept God's Word and you feel like people are condemning you, let me just say, it is likely the case, very likely the case, that you are resisting the Lord exposing your own shame, which he exposes graciously so he can forgive you and give you new life. So let me just encourage you, go there with the Lord. Go there with him. He's kind. He's merciful. He doesn't expose things without also healing them. But this should also shape the way we think about talking to unbelievers. When we're speaking to someone who's resistant to the gospel, we're speaking to a person not a brain on a stick, not arguments. We're speaking to a person. And so our job uh, is to begin to reckon with the fact that they, as a person, carry all sorts of shame and fear and desire. And our job is not to recklessly expose that shame. You don't believe in God because X, Y, Z in your life. Nope. Our job is to begin getting to know that person and building trust so we can walk with them and kindly and mercifully help them see their own shame. And once that's on the table, I guarantee you, they will be ready, ready to hear about God's grace. And this brings us to our last point. Why has shame dominated and blinded the life of these scribes and Pharisees? Jesus says it's because they don't know or trust the love of God. In fact, look at verses 41 and 42. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So long as the love of God has not shaped their minds and hearts, they will always be hungry for glory from other people. So instead of talking about why they don't love, uh, trust the love of God, I actually don't know, right? Uh, I want to think about how the love of God is meant to shape and renew us, how it's meant to shape us. 
What is it about knowing God that deals with our shame, that keeps us from seeking glory from others, that allows us to become students instead of masters, and that ultimately makes us better knowers and thinkers? Let me just catalog who our God is for a moment from this passage. First, Jesus is the true judge of the whole cosmos. He sees all things. He knows all things. He has the right to judge all, and yet he was accused. He was wrongly condemned. He was unjustly executed. The chief witness was rejected and accused by false witnesses. The radiance of God's glory was spit upon, whipped, laid dead in a tomb after his public execution and mockery. He was exposed for my sake. And now he cleanses all my guilt because of the truly shameful things I've done and said and believed. That is the true judge. That he stands in my place and has suffered for my sins. And in fact, so humble is this true judge that he actually honors, he honors the thinking of his people so seriously that he gives them good reason to believe in him. Secondly, he's committed to our restoration. I mean, this whole passage began with Jesus seeing a man who was paralyzed for 38 years and simply recognizing, simply seeing him, the person who everyone would like to avoid. And he comes up to him and says, would you like to be healed? Stand, take up your mat. But more than that, Jesus is working for our full restoration at last, our resurrection. If you want to talk about shame, let's talk about dying. If you ever sat with someone who's dying, you know what I'm talking about. You don't control your own body anymore. You can't feed yourself. Uh, You're so weak, often you can't even wipe your own mouth. Uh, You can't speak. Death, death is a terrible shame. It is a stripping of all our dignity so that all the things we do to manage and care for ourselves, we can't even do those. And we're simply in front of everyone, exposed. But Jesus has suffered that shame first. Jesus has been shamed in our place. So that now, even in our death, it's simply the beginning of him giving us new life, that he would raise us to new bodies that will never taste death again. That Jesus, the true judge of the whole world, Jesus, the one who suffered and died for us, it's his voice that will call us out of the tombs to the resurrection of life. It's his voice that gives us new life now. It's his voice that says, you, you in him have passed from death to life now. Jesus is committed to our full restoration, to our resurrection But third, God promises to give me a stake in his glory. Look at verse 44 again. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they receive glory from one another and they don't seek the glory that comes from the only only God. That is to say, there is glory from God on offer. God gives glory to people. Now, that doesn't mean that we're stealing his glory or getting his praise or putting ourselves in his position, but that God in all his majesty, in all his divine glory 
and kindness and holiness turns to each one of you and will honor you publicly that he has made you a co-heir with Christ that you will stand before the whole cosmos and he would say this, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased well done good and faithful servant you have a stake in God's glory and God is all the more glorified for it Jesus is our life. He's our joy because he has done all these things, because he is all of these things, first off, in love. And so, if he's done this, if he is the judge who has died in my place, who is committed to my restoration, who gives me his own glory, I don't have to be the judge anymore. I can be exposed because he exposes to forgive. I don't have to hide my shame from the Lord, but I can confess to him because he's kind, merciful, and powerful to change me. I can seek and love God, being glorified with all of my heart, instead of trying to get you to give me glory, because he is in my favor. He's on my side. If I trust him, I can hear his words as invitation to real life to come to him instead of condemnation for how I mess it up. If I've come to know God's love, I can finally bask in it. I can finally enjoy it. I'll finally be ready to be a better thinker, a better learner, in short, a wise son. Loving God is required to know him and to hear his witness in the scriptures and through his ministers. And to know him is to trust him, to trust his love for you and not to own him. Jesus says the same thing. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A wise son listens to his father's instruction. Even Jesus listens. So being loved by God and loving him in return, it turns out, is the best theology there is. Let's pray.